0: Hello to you. welcome to Series 1, Episode 3 of One Foot in the Podcast with me, Tom. Thank you very much for downloading once again. Today I'm going to be talking about the episode, The Valley of Fear. Since the release of uh, the pilot, I've acquired quite a few listeners, so I'm very grateful. and to have some lovely feedback. I'd like to give a, a little shout out to a good mate of mine, Chris Latham, one of my loyal listeners. So thank you very much, Chris, for downloading and listening and giving them some constructive feedback. Uh, much appreciated if you'd like to get in contact always available at at com. Uh, also on twitter at onefootinthepod if you've listened to episode two uh, for some reason the volume was dipping in and out i can only blame myself for that perhaps i was uh rocking back and forward <laughs> towards the speaker so far i'm joined the doing the podcast and i hope you are as well like i said anything i should discuss in addition to the actual Scene breakdown, that'd be good. I introduced the Mel Drew Moan Corner uh last week, so I'll be continuing that today. Trying to think of something to moan about that isn't coronavirus related. And I'll try and keep it different every week. In case you that's saying, if you know anyone that's a fan of the One From the Grave and partial to listening to a podcast or open minded to the idea of listening to podcasts, and if you wouldn't mind plugging this show, that'd be great. I'm just trying to build a little listener ship and it's slowly growing. I am very grateful to those who listen. Let's get on with the show. Immediately we kick off Victor showing us that he's caught in the bear trap of life. Since he's retired it's become quickly established as per Victor's words that he spent half his life in hospital. Quips that he should have a season ticket in care. Uh, Victor Meldrew wearing a headband or a head bandage, I should say, with an apparent blooded wound left centre of his forehead. He's clearly got on the wrong side of someone or something. Quickly established that he's essentially had some sort of bad luck with health or accidents. So he's an accident-prone kind of guy, but nothing has changed since he's retired. Got into some trouble with Margaret, words as soccer hooligans. bit disappointing they use the term soccer, since this is a British programme. We know soccer as football in this country. But yeah, some football hooligans had... Mugged, poor old Victor. We find this out because Margaret is taking a phone call from uh, her mum, and she says that you know he went out to um, Bluebell Wood, takes some photographs of badgers, something that Victor hasn't apparently done before. He's taken up a new hobby to relieve any stress and anxiety, which is was recommended to him. Victor walks out into the kitchen as Margaret's on the telephone to her mum. As she's recounting the story, he comes back in and says,
1: "Tell her I was sexually molested." It's quite
0: a dark but comical one-liner margaret's mum clearly questioned that and believed it because margaret had to say i think he was joking mum."
1: i can still smell it you know smell what i don't know but it's worse when you stand by the sideboard
0: we're not that far into this first scene and there's going to be recurring slightly mysterious smell by the the sideboard margaret's a smell a mysterious smell something that victor can't that will be brought up quite a few times and poor old Victor just can't smell anything. Something we can speculate that Victor never seems to be on the same same wavelength as people. Again, throughout the series, quite often he is alone in his thought process or his mindset or what he sees and hears. The podcast is all about speculating, really. You know, the mystery behind Victor Meldrew and Margaret to a certain extent. This might, might be something minor with this smell by the sideboard that he can't spell but everyone else can, which we'll learn throughout this episode. But throughout the series, he is a mysterious kind of bloke. I like to think we're all on his side with his thought process and his mindset. Um, I know I am. I think he sees the world as something of a mystery to him. He's a mysterious kind of character. He just can't get his head around people's ways and what they see and how how they experience things. So this sideboard thing might be something very, a tiny subject. But I think it's a little bit of foreshadowing from Renwick. I mentioned foreshadowing already in this uh, first couple of episodes. Renwick obviously had a vision of how he would progress the show and progress Richard Wilson's character. It's just food for thought. One little nerdy observation is... Victor and Margaret do something that we a lot of people did in the 80s and 90s. When they answered the telephone, they quoted their number. I don't know why anyone would, would do that. Throughout the show, Series two was their number is 4291. It's quite a short number. I know that area codes were a digit shorter or a digit less up until the mid-90s. crisis is this is unbelievably geeky but in this first series it's 770301 I can't believe I'm even observing that but you know this is a podcast dedicated to one put in the grave and like I did say I'll be dissecting everything so god that's gonna be embarrassing when I hear this back anyway I completely digressed so so far we've learned that Victor has been mugged by some quote-unquote soccer hooligans they've taken his watch his wallet his camera uh, his pen pen knife and a brown tweed jacket the brown jacket will be will will play an important part in the plot as the episode goes on towards the end of this first uh, scene victor is sits down on the, his settee watching Prisoner's cell block h and i don't know why renwick chose that specific program of him watching i don't know if it's a tribute to the show's so, one of Renwick's favourites. I'm sure someone out there can answer that for me. Margaret references that he's taken some sedatives. That he should be knocked out any minute. And of course, within uh, in response to that, he denies that it ever works. And course, a Moments later, he falls asleep holding a cup of tea or coffee, I might add. Well, surely it would have spilled. There you go. Moving on to scene two. Victor's up a ladder. He's scrubbing off some graffiti on the side of his house that reads, The man who lives here is a turd. Simple but funny. He's been described as a turd on numerous occasions in the show. This is the first we see. It's once again, her Mrs. Wallboy's back in the episode. She didn't appear in the last episode, to knowledge. Margaret's doing some laundry, comes across some of Victor's underwear. Noticeably, the underwear which has threadbare pants and boxer shorts. Now, the gentleman listening to this I'm sure you share my sentiments in that. We've all been there. We've all had... Well, maybe you haven't, but I certainly have had underwear wear that's been threadbare. And the missus has absolutely eyeballed me for keeping them. I just think, you know, use them to the bitter end, isn't it? There's no point in wasting them. Margaret does something that my missus would do in that as Victor's scrubbing off the graffiti, she chucks up his threadbare boxer shorts, which land in his bucket of water, saying that she he can use that to scrub off the rest of the paint. Something that's very Victor Mildred happens now, where he sarcasm is one of his main characteristics proceeds to call pretend to be speaking to members of his street in response to Margaret and Mrs. Warboys comment on his, boxer shorts out out loud. I mean, he's got a point, essentially. It's his, it's his own underwear. I mean, Margaret's doing the, the washing, so she she probably has some kind of right to take the mech because it's she that's doing his cleaning. But nevertheless, it's in, it's in front of Mrs. Warboys.
1: I wonder if I could bring in the lady out the road walking her dog at this point. Excuse me, madam. We're asking everyone in the world what they think of Victor Meldrew's disturbing tendency to wear out a pair of y fronts in 10 seconds flat. Yes, the Bishop of Durham. What's your point of view in on this one, sir?
0: I wanted to address the fact it's semi-interesting that Victor and Mrs. Warboys do not address each other by first name. One can only speculate why that's the case. I think that's just been the dynamic since they first met. I can only assume Mrs. Warboys and Margaret have been friends for, well, many decades. Now, given I'm re-watching this show and I haven't seen all these episodes that recently, I can't recall if it's ever discussed or mentioned how they first met each other. I'm going to assume they work together at one time or another. Victor Meldrew never really has too much respect for Mrs. Warboys, but she seems to have a lot of respect for him. She's very gentle and sweet and sort of tiptoes around him and seems a little frightened of him as well because he is quite a, sarcastic, well, a sardonic, uh, straight talking individual, but yet she does seem to respect him. So, yeah, so Victor's sarcastically shouting across the street uh, to invite others to have their say on his underwear situation. What we take from that scene outdoors is that we we later learn that vandals got in through the side gate and graffitied his wall. I remember talking about whether Victor Maldry has always been a grump, always been a misery guts. This episode reveals that he probably has been, certainly since he's been living in that, this particular house. If the vandals have graffitied what they graffitied. They've got in through the side access gate, which is important to know or important to learn, because that's quite vital to the plot. And they've gone to the trouble of, you know, writing that the, the man who lives here is a turd. They obviously don't know him by name, or well, they might know him by name, but they, they they haven't referenced his Christian name anyway. So that by that matter, he has probably always been a grump, and he progressively becomes more and more of a grump. Anyway, back into the kitchen. Victor, it's a little annoyed. With Margaret, she's leaving cupboard doors open, the back doors open, and we'll learn shortly why that is relevant to one of the subplots of this episode.
1: You're right. I can definitely smell it. What do you think it is? I don't know. But it's worse when you stand by the sideboard. Well, don't stand by the bloody sideboard. (laughs) Go home.
0: The sideboard is mentioned again. This time Mrs. Wallboys, of course, is smelling it. And they're speculating what it could be. Victor replies, you know, why are you standing by the bloody sideboard? As she's investigating how... How strong the smell is if you stand a certain distance away from it. In response to Victor's Don't Stand By the Ruddy Sideboard, Mrs. Warboy speculates that perhaps he just simply can't smell uh, since the accident he had when he sniffed a live wasp which Victor dun- denies he said he, he'd sniffed a rhododendron I didn't quite know what a rhododendron is is it a flower I thought he said a rodent when I first watched this back but interesting to know he can't smell whatever it is by the cyborg and is that a clever bit of writing by Renwick because is it a metaphor for Victor not sniffing out obvious problems coming his way could be cheesy to even speculate, but I just thought I'd put it out there. Now, this episode really starts to kick in now. It becomes apparent. We hear some pipes banging upstairs, and we learn that they've had some plumbing problems recently. It's driving Victor around the bend. Margaret says she'll ring the plumbers to try and fix it. But Victor responds with, not that one with the glass eye. The lavatory is a death trap to this day. I wonder, (laughs) just trying to think, someone who's blind in one eye has fitted a lavatory? Perhaps... I cannot even begin to think how that could be a death trap. You'd have to, someone have to help me out there. But it's visually, it's funny just to even imagine what Victor's even trying to recall there. Whatever it meant, it did go over the audience's head because there wasn't any laugh in response to it. Victor's about to leave the kitchen and we, he's faced with a cat. Quite an obvious, I'm using the F word again here. An obvious foreshadowing of what we're going, what we're going to encounter shortly. It appears to be the evening time now. Victor and Margaret are sat on their sofa. They're talking about local crime. Of course, this episode hinges around local vandalism gobbos beating people up like poor Victor and we'll see other things as the episode progresses. It's a quote something from the local rag to say that boy cuts someone's head off at the mortuary for a laugh and there's always little strange unusually funny quips like that in the show that Renwick puts in which just adds to the clinical comedy dynamics that this show brings, just such bizarre anecdotes or situations you know, just, but local newspapers do come up with some absolute beauties you, you pick up your local newspaper and there's the most bizarre even front page, front page headline which you just cannot understand for a minute why it's even published Victor said, why are, you know, people like this in this day and age, which is something they'll say more and more and more, and Margaret says that he was, in, in that he was of similar ilk because he voted sdp back in the day which i, I don't i don't understand the, re- the relevance to that at all i think she's insinuating that of how victor's political views meant that he had a certain way about him as a as a youth but the sdp as far as i'm aware are the social democratic party and they were only formed in the early 80s and this is 1990 so whatever margaret's saying victor would only mean that the youngest mid-40s so not exactly talking about Victor's youth unless, again, someone would have to tell me who the SDP were. If the, if there was, if there was a, another social democratic party in the 40s and 50s, actually, she could be referring to. But ultimately, Victor wants to come up with a neighbourhood watch. I don't think neighbourhood watches are a thing anymore. I, you do see the odd sign in suburban areas and streets across Britain that it may say we are a neighbourhood watcher, but I don't actually know what that means anymore. I don't there's any legalities behind it other than people just well, no nosy people looking out the window, ready to report crime. And these days they probably report it onto a you know like a Facebook page or something. Now this show is all about dark comedy. That's something out of the blue, bizarre visuals, things that essentially don't make sense. And I like that about um, remix writing. A lot of th- a lot of the time things do not make sense. But you can piece together and in this instance, fixer <laughs> He's walked into the kitchen and back into the living room again, and he's quite stunned and, and asks Margaret, "Did you put a cat in our freezer?" Now this, this scene now did bring home a lot of complaints to the BBC, which I just think is—I think we would all agree—is ridiculous. You know, ge- people genuinely thought it was a real cat, and those who didn't think it was a real cat just thought it was a bit distasteful. You know, people, members of the public will be members of the public. Some are more sensitive than others. This, this scene brings on a whole stretch of hilarious one-liners.
1: What's the matter? Did you put a cat in our freezer? <laughs> what? The bottom of the freezer cabinet. There's a cat in it. <laughs> what? A dead one? Well, there's not play with a bloody ball of wool. <laughs> it's frozen solid wool in. <laughs> Oh, my God! Oh, my God! I warned you not to go about leaving these doors open. You might know that something like this would happen. I've come over all cold. You've come over all cold? God almighty! You're not going to take it out. I'm not going to leave it in there, am I? So his eyes light up every time you open the door. I think I feel sick. <laughs> Are you sure it's dead? You'd no, think it's a pretty safe bed, wouldn't you? I mean, it's a bit parky in there at the best of times. to start a fire (laughs) how long do you think it had been in there I don't know I will look for its sell-by date (laughs) that's all I need the end of a perfect day (laughs) just as well we don't have a chest freezer I might be standing here with a with a frozen mammoth
0: One after the other, Victor's just bouncing back, one line after one liner. When M- Margaret's saying things like "I feel all cold," and how do you think he's feeling? You know, it's it's down. It's not just the writing; it's down to the acting, really. It's just the the delivery is just perfect. It's quite an eerie sight seeing, um, you know, a frozen cat led on a tray brought out of a freezer Now, at this point you can think well it's obvious you know margaret keeps doors open side gate from outside was left open we obviously saw the cat trying to get into the kitchen in an earlier scene so this is essentially down to margaret it's not always Mar. it's not it's not always victor that gets himself into a these sorts of situations, he has to deal with what's around him. Appears to be the following day, Margaret's just off out. I don't actually know where she's going, but she quickly remembers she's she's forgotten something, and she goes back into the kitchen, and she is greeted by an elderly lady, Mrs. Burkett. And Mrs. Burkett has come round because Mrs. Warboys has said there's some junk available for her, presumably for a charity of sorts. It's mentioned by Margaret, Victor's out uh, collecting prescriptions, and that'll be back shortly, but Mrs. Burkett is more than welcome to help herself to the junk, which is in the loft. don't know how I feel about letting someone into the house to help herself to something in the loft. Mrs. Burkett is quite acknowledging the fact that she's been entrusted to help herself in Victor Margaret's house. And says, you know, you can never be too careful. The charity finances are all over the place after someone had um, robbed them of their money. So she says they've had to freeze a kitty, which is quite a... Amusing one-liner, which brings a chill to Margaret's Spine uh, in that moment. In comes Victor, after Mrs. Burkett's helped herself into the loft. He's brought home an obscene amount of medication, which just is just telling you the kind of ailments he he has or he thinks he's got. It's just a continuation of his hypochondriac, but perhaps does have some ailments along the way. He's of an age where perhaps we do get certain things that go wrong with us at a time of life. Doorbell goes and it's one Christopher Ryan who you'll know from The Young Ones and Bottom amongst other things. Christopher Ryan appears in two episodes. He appears as just a plumber. I don't think he's given a name and he plays twins in a later episode Hole in the Sky. He's known as the McKendrick twins which is extremely funny episode. I can't quite work out why. I'm not quite sure why Christopher Ryan was played two different characters. It would have worked absolutely fine if he played a jack of all trades he's a plumber in this episode and he's a builder in the later episode he appears in holding the sky equally plays the role really well very sharp very much that old school kind of vibe how he plays a plumber straight builder massive mullet on him as well he's joined by a plumbing assistant who i'm not that familiar with him his name's david keys he's been in parts of the caribbean but also several other one-off episodes like the bill and coronation street eastenders so very much a job in actor the ongoing cookies that have been uh, placed in this episode with doors being kept open victor finds another one open this time the loft hatch which will of course pretty much cement the plot for this episode the plumbers they take a look at victor's plumbing and his heater and the plumber played by crystal ryan burns himself which is quite funny because of his reaction he's showing Fixed the inside of his thigh, the burn that he's acquired. Apparently he's used to it because that comes with the job. And he established that the thermostat's knackered and you have to come back in three days to fix it. Okay, it's only a sitcom. It doesn't matter. It's it's not vital to the plot. But I'm sure they would have heard poor Mrs. Burkett in the banging on... Well, they certainly heard her banging, but they would have heard her calling out. Something I forgot to mention is she... I'm sure it's purposely done... Talked very gently and very soft, which is probably obvious to say that, actually, so that we can sort of believe that they wouldn't hear her call out, maybe. I don't know. I still think, given that they're like a metre and a half away from her, they would have heard someone calling out. Maybe at least gone up into the loft because, I, mean, I don't know. Boilers work entirely w- with with uh, pipes and whatnot, but you'd think they might do some investigating if they could hear the noise coming from clearly above them. But anyway, thought it was worth noting. Just to rewind a moment, Christopher Ryan's character flubbergasted how hot the tank is. And he says, We've been testing nuclear warheads on that. sarcastically, of course. And uh, again, I've never, th- never thought about this before, but perhaps that is a little Easter egg from Remwick there to suggest that obviously that isn't the case why it's boiling hot. It's just sheer sarcasm, naturally. But... Is it just to tell us that, you know, Victor's so such a bizarre character and experiences such strange things in his life that nu- some sort of nuclear testing has been performed on performed on him without him knowing. I don't know, it's just one of those silly little speculative things. I think my favourite line from <laughs> from Christopher Ryan is oh, it's
1: all right I'll be all right in a minute. But well, perhaps we can get you some dressing. Room. Don't tell him that, he'll come back with a bottle of vinaigrette. I don't know, I'm fine. Fine.
0: In response to victor saying would you like me to get some dressing for it and he sort of ushers that towards the plumber's assistant as well don't tell him that he'll come back with some vinaigrette clearly got that sort of stereotypical relationship where the assistant is completely dopey just trying to learn the job as he goes by the looks of it it appears to be the following day because victor is quite a bright scene sun shining through the windows victor's eating his cereal whilst reading the paper margaret walks in and it's quickly established that she's Essentially, been with Mr. Burke all night, uh, which is going above and beyond her Call of Duty, and I'm only assuming that because he says uh, any any luck, any joy of finding Burke. I just point out that Victor's taken out some earbuds at this at this moment in time, so that. That's to give us that belief that he would not have heard her calling out for help. And Margaret recounts Mr. Burkett's anxieties. Uh, she responds that Mr. Burkett is threatened that she's been abducted to grant sexual favours to various sultans of the United Arab Emirates. Quite a creative bit of dialogue that, you know, painting a, the painting a picture in the male Drew world of how paranoid people can truly get. The penny slowly is dropped. Victor says he's just not even seen her. Margaret recounts the fact that she left about 10 to 10 the previous day, so that's how we know it's the following day, and to go into the loft to collect the, the junk. The, the banging occurs once again, and, yeah, you can see, like I said, the penny dropping. Oh,
1: God, Victor, no! What? You haven't! <laughs> haven't what, Margaret? Margaret?
0: And she rushes upstairs to let poor Mrs. Burkett out. On learning that Mrs. Burkett was locked in the... <laughs> locked in the loft unintentionally by Victor. Margaret's obviously got the ump with him, and this is the first time really we see her stroppy with Victor, because she is stroppy with him throughout the series, whether it's his fault or not, whether he means to get into get himself into trouble, she is genuinely not happy then. The next thing we've got the neighbourhood watch at Victor and Margaret's house. They're all discussing once again the local crime that's been going on around the area. We see actor Walter Sparrow who's a legendary actor in this field. I know him mostly from appearing in Till Death is the part of Only Fools and Horses as Dirty Barry. The Neighbourhood Watch are discussing a mixture of crime that's been going on in the area and of course the cyborg smell gets brought up again. You know, you can smell it. Whatever it is they can smell is much stronger if they stand by the cyborg.
1: Can you smell something over here? I've been saying that all week what is it then? I don't know but you can definitely smell it and yet you can't smell it by the window no I know you can't ah, it's, it's worse when he's standing by the sideboard <laughs> look I, I can't smell anything here Margaret no you can you go over there if you can't smell it over here what's it going go over there for? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I can smell it here now, all right. Well, go back over there, then. I wonder why you can't smell it here. No, it's says you come through from the kitchen. Can you smell it, Mrs. Oh, Stanley? This is where you smell it worse, when you stand by the sideboard. I'll see if you can smell it by the window. No, you can't smell it, not by the window. You can only smell it by the sideboard. Look, no, for Christ's sake, it's perfectly simple. <laughs> Everyone just stay away from the bloody sideboard.
0: The sideboard thing, as a side note, isn't doesn't really click with the audience. They don't really find it that funny that it's some mysteri- mystery but amusing continuation throughout this episode. We'll come to it in a moment, but we, we can speculate what that smell certainly could be. Going back to Walter Sparrow, he recounts a funny anecdote on crime in the area where he said a gentleman called Mr Melrose, he can't get out of his house since the crime in the area. Not since he's had the, the new locks fitted in his home, which I thought was quite funny.
1: He's right, they're vandals, all of them. Yeah. And sadistic with it too, some of them. That's right. Do you know what Meg and I found when we went up the tip yesterday? A dead cat. <laughs> some monster had suffocated in a plastic bin liner and stuffed down inside one of the skits. They must be sick. It's too good for them.
0: There's another character here called Mr Prout, who also appears in the first episode of the second series in Luton Airport, No One Can Heave Scream. I thought it was interesting that he returns again for series two. He seems to be sort of a, someone that would certainly get on Victor's nerves. He doesn't quite take things seriously. He's not always, he's not exactly Mr Cooperative in in conversation with Victor. Victor actually shows he's got a gun on his Um, person he carries a he calls it a deterrent that kind of shocks the the neighbors in his living room they're not quite focused as it is with this smell by the sideboard and just they're just there to gossip eventually Victor loses it with them raises his voice and essentially gives in and says look just put on Emmerdale and that's the end of that scene we're in an external shot now now because Victor has been had been robbed he is on the lookout for a replacement brown tweed jacket comes across a del boy type on the market cheeky cockney will just try to sell him anything anything that's clearly rubbish victor sort of plays along with it just to test the fact that he's will sell anything or say anything positive to make a sale victor spots his apparent jacket and he has a little tussle with the market trader and in the midst of the struggle the market trader sees the gun in victor's bag which i I don't Obviously, Victor doesn't mean for it to be, you know, on show. It is there just as a deterrent, but it's enough for the market trader to let him have the jacket for free, and Victor walks off. After the market scene, Victor bumps into Mrs. Warboys, and she said, in reference to Victor carrying a gun for a deterrent, she got her, and she quotes her eldest son who dug up their garden. My eldest, Harold, found it when digging up in the garden. She says, I saw him start wagging his tail, and I thought, Hello? And I watched this back. I thought, oh, she does have some family then, because she only ever references cousins and nephews and whatnot. But you think, tail, we haven't got a son then, have you? I just thought the innocence of Mrs. Wallboys and the sheer love she obviously has for her dog, the fact she calls it her eldest. As it happens, I refer to my dog as uh, my eldest. I have a daughter, but yes, it's funny how some people treat their dogs, you know, almost like they are humans. But we love them, that's why we do it. But anyway, yeah, Margaret just clarifies it's just for the deterrent factor. Victor snatches it off her and lobs it over the nearest wall we can find, which is such a huge risk. And he's trying to, essentially he's just trying to save himself and her. He lobs it over a wall and it lands on a, a bowling green. <laughs> and the first thing one of this elderly chap says is, oh, it's Mrs Warboy's hand grenade. So she's obviously been gossiping in the local area that she's found this grenade. And a familiar actor you may recognise, uh, Mr. Jake Wood, who plays Max Brannon from EastEnders, also has another one-off part in um, Only Falls and Horses and Jolly Boys Alton. Thought I should note. But yeah, he he, Jake Wood and this other chap, uh, they're probably playing a couple of nineteen, twenty-year-olds. They see Victor led on the floor because he's trying to not, you know, he thinks the grenade is live, and they both try and resuscitate him, and Victor fights them off. is is a bit acting, I've got to say, even by Victor Melger actually, with the he's fighting them off, but he's essentially slapping them away, which just doesn't look quite uh, well choreographed, but still comedy value in in itself because of the the mix-up and confusion. We're back in the living room. Margaret's on the telephone to her mum once again. And she's just confirming that, amongst other things, that the smell by the cyborg camera is now gone. And would you believe it? I did not, I did, genuinely didn't mean to say that. Victor can now smell whatever this mysterious stench is by the sideboard. And if the big reveal also with the jacket is she, that she being Margaret, said the police have raided a, a tower block of flats nearby and recovered some of Victor's stolen possessions, including the brown jacket, which means
1: I think I've just carried out an armed robbery in broad daylight. <laughs> Never mind, I'll
0: put the kettle on. <laughs> the irony of this episode is Victor has carried out crime, a live, um, or daylight, literally daylight robbery, so I would like to think that I would have thought Victor is a good, he's a decent human being, he would have returned the brown tweed jacket jacket that he nicked. But yeah, typically, Victor can now smell whatever it is by the sideboard.
1: What the hell can I smell by this sideboard? <laughs>
0: Now, people speculate that the smell is the cat, but from the very first scene, before the cat is discovered in the freezer, that smell is apparently obvious to Margaret, Mrs. Wallboys, and all the neighbors. So it couldn't be in the cat. The cat, the cat was very much alive shortly after that scene when Victor was not letting it back into the kitchen. So, an unanswered mystery. That's what I like about One Foot in the Grave. There are some mysteries that are never quite accounted for. Even all the way to the final episode, which one day I'll be covering. One of the biggest mysteries... It is still not confirmed to this day, which we'll get to one day. But yeah, that wraps up this episode. I think I enjoyed that a little bit more than episode two. I think it's a little bit of a, a mystery in itself why the audience didn't really find the cyborg element funny. I think it was supposed to be sort of quirky and out of the blue, random funny. I think if that episode appeared later on in the series when the show is more than warmed up and people got used to what the characters are like in Victor and Margaret, Perhaps that would have been funny. I don't know. But the show is still finding its feet at this point. Sometimes uh, the first series on most shows, they're they're not quite on point, not until they developed enough characters or developed enough storylines for the viewer, the audience members understand those character quirks and what they like in nature and the whole black dark comedy element of the show that these random things happen to victor and margaret mostly victor Yeah, hey, that wraps up the episode the valley of fear thanks once again for listening to episode three next time i'll bring you episode four titled i'll retire to bedlam once again if you'd like to get in contact you can email one foot in the podcast at gmail.com or follow my twitter at one foot in the pod any feedback is greatly appreciated give the twitter account a follow hopefully the audio is a little clearer on this episode and i'd also like to point out that the artwork for this podcast created by me on microsoft paint hence the lack of professionalism and the blurry content final segment of the show the Mel moan My drew moan this week, God, it's so hard not to choose coronavirus-related matters, but I promised I wouldn't you know, even um, mention it, and i broke that promise. No. My dream moan is very specific, and I'm going to try not to offend. It's to do with my place of work. I, like everyone else, has a lanyard, a pass, which you, know, you should always have about your person. And this is a bit of a difficult one, because what I'm about to complain about, or moan about, isn't really warranted. It's purely a selfish moan. But I find that sometimes I'm walking into the colleague entrance of this of the bit of the building and it's the same type of person that will challenge me on whether I got a pass. And it, I'm sorry, but it's almost always a woman in her fifties or sixties who looks totally worn out and depressing. Oh, every time. And and I don't mind I understand why you've got to be asked and challenged and It's for safety and following a protocol, but it's always the same type. It's like, it it will happen in waves as well. So it will happen for like three days in a row, then it won't for a few weeks, then every day of the week I'll get challenged as I walk in. And I don't see, whoever is challenging me, they don't seem to be asking the person next to me who doesn't have their pass out. I wear mine around my neck and, and it's tucked inside my jumper. It might be in my zip pocket, ready to scan. And I just... It's the manner of how you're asked. It's not a, oh, I'm Really sorry. I just need to check. I've got your pass on you because you know, we've had some security problems lately. Um, got your pass, and it's the look you get. It's quite rude and blunt. And I feel like, essentially, if I read into it, I feel like, well, I'm this male guy who I don't know. I'm not. I don't look particularly hard, and I dress smart for work. I like to think I dress smart for work. And getting judged somewhat the fact that other people with me or near me and they've not been asked and that i cannot see their lanyards on them they've asked she's only challenged me that annoys me and that is reason for me to moan what i tend to say back is i've got mine have you got yours even though she she'll have it in her hand and she'll give me like the most bemused look and i'll just walk on anyway that's annoying and every time i walk towards the colleague entrance and i see a a middle-aged woman with a certain look okay here we go i'm gonna get challenged again it's never a bloke or a young woman it's always the same type of person and it annoys me and actually as i say this I realised that this is in connection with the show because Victor Meldrew was a security guard, so I'm sure Victor would have great joy in challenging anyone walking into his building. That's it from Meldrew Moan. Thanks very much once again for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Still very much new to podcasting alone, but please do uh, stick with me. I'm sure as the podcast progresses, it hopefully will age with a fine wine, just like One Foot in the Grave did. Take care. Cheers.
1: All on, in the Grave